Welcome to the Imago Day Community Podcast. We have, um, last year we were able to do a number of projects, and so it's fun to see many of those come to completion. And you can actually download the app, uh, waterproject.org. And if you go to the website, you can download the app. And you can find Imago Day community. It'll show you all the projects we've done. You can see the communities, how many uh, people have been resourced. And it's a really beautiful partnership that we have with the Water Project and our partners in Kenya. And so continue to pray about that. I don't know how, much, uh, how many presents you didn't buy last year because we gave to clean water. But my guess is you can't remember what you didn't get. Um, and yet in April, May, June, July, people were going from drinking out of uh, polluted streams to actually drinking clean water. Kids were no longer sick. Uh, girls were able to go to school full time. Like literally the gift of clean water changes lives and futures in really profound ways. And so our prayer is that this year we could continue in uh, jumping into that with some of our global work this Advent. Uh, the team worked uh, for several hours putting these kits together, and they're not just for those of you with kids. They're actually to help all of us kind of get into the rhythm of worshiping Jesus this Advent. And so I encourage you to pick one of those up and uh, take it home with you. It's, it's really kind of crazy to believe that it starts next Sunday. Is it just me on that one? Um, well, we hope that you all have a wonderful Thanksgiving this week. I know people are already starting to travel. Uh, it brings up all kinds of uh, good things and kind of like, how is this gonna be when we're around family? Um, and, and as we do, as we prepare for Thanksgiving, we are also wrapping up uh, our series on authentic spirituality in the life of David. Have you enjoyed the series? I hope it's been good for us. Um, by the way, we wanna, we wanna say hey to everybody online. Let's show them some love this morning. Yes. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. My mic feels a little bit hot. Um, and we're going to look at the story of David and Bathsheba. It is one of those stories that we are um, frankly surprised that we are allowed to know. One that we might wish we didn't know. We have seen David in many different places within his life, in the margins, in the wilderness, full of faith, full of faithfulness. We've seen him see his, a worshiping heart when he took the throne with his eyes on Yahweh, his eyes on God. But now we see a David who has held power for some time, and he has grown accustomed to that power. A David who has grown to enjoy 
the ability to exercise his own authority. And a David who answers to nothing and no one. Like all kings, David is the final arbiter of reality in his realm. And in some sense, David is a picture of what many of us wish we could be in terms of being the arbiter of our own realities. When we read this story, it is a story that is difficult to read because it is a story where not only is David not a hero, David is, frankly, really evil. And yet God, in his um, faithfulness and yet firmness, deals with David in, his, in the reality of David's evil, in the reality of David's sin. And so read this story along with me in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It says, in the spring at the time when the kings go off to war, David sent Joab, who was one of his commanders, out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. And they destroyed the Ammonites and they besieged Rabbah and David remained in Jerusalem. That is not something kings did. They went out with the army and so the writer is letting us know that that's not good. And one evening, David got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof of the palace and from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful and David sent someone to find out about her and the man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And then David sent messengers to get her and she came to him and he slept with her and now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home, and the woman conceived, and she sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. And so David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, and how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And so Uriah left the palace and um, left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all of his master's servants, and he didn't go down to his house. And David was told Uriah didn't go home, and so he asked Uriah, "Haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home?" And Uriah said to David. The ark of Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and the Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and to drink and to make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. And then David said with him, stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. And so Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. 
And so in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. And in it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is the fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. And so while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. And Joab sent David a full account of the battle and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving this account, the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed, who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asked this of you, then say to him, moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. In other words, Joab uses this occasion to fight any way he wants. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said today, the men overpowered us and came out against us out in, out in the open, but we drove them back from the entrance of the city gate, and then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. And David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time was mourning was over, David had her brought to the house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. We are shocked that a story like this shows up in, of all places, the Bible. Uh, we talked about how David's story is not a moral story. It is not a story of good versus bad. It is a human story. And it's being told this story so honestly and artistically that it allows us to ask questions of our own hearts, of the, of the world, of the way the world works, of our own desire for power and control and the way that we see power and control played out in the world. Our propensity to take what is not ours, to disregard God's claims over the world and over humanity. And we're given a key at the beginning that something has changed in David's heart. In the spring when the kings go off to war, David stayed home. Early on when the people begin to ask for a king in 1 Samuel, way back before they asked, before Saul became king, the people said, we want a king over us a king who will lead us and go out before us to fight our battles. But here we are 
And David has become their king, but now he is a king who just has better things to do. And so we're called into this story that pits two different views of the world against each other. There is this one view of the world that is the autonomous king, the all-powerful ruler, the one who has the ability to get what they want without consequence. And then there is the view of Yahweh, who has shown us what he desires and requires for human community and for worship in Torah, in the Old Testament. And we have these characters in this story. We have Bathsheba. Bathsheba simply names, the, the, the word Bathsheba simply means daughter of Iliam. In other words, we're never given Bathsheba's name. Her title is always in reference to who she belongs to. She's the daughter of Eliam. She's Uriah's wife. She's the woman David calls for. She has been mislabeled throughout history as someone who seduced David and in many ways represents countless women throughout history who have only been seen in relation to men who had power over them and whose lives were essentially dictated by the choices of those men. And then we have Joab, David's commander, and Uriah the Hittite, who is not even an Israelite, and yet is the picture of what faithfulness looks like. He is the picture of integrity. He is the picture of loyalty to his home, to his soldiers, and to his king. And then there's David, a king who is at the height of his power, the apex of his authority, where everyone does what David says. And so we have this story that is a very short story in actuality. There's no romance to this relationship between David and Bathsheba. There's no conversation. We get the picture that David has the power to get what he wants. So it says, he saw, he inquired, he took, he lay. David is a king who has full authority over his realm and he creates reality. But he soon realizes that there are things that have limits to what he can control. He gets word back, I'm pregnant. I'm pregnant. The woman conceived is the word that we get. And what I love about the way that Bathsheba has been sort of honored in the story of Israel's history is that when you get to Matthew chapter 1, it's the genealogy of Jesus. And there's only three women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. And they are all non-Jewish women. There is Tamar, Rahab, and Uriah's wife. 
And what Matthew is doing in his genealogy is he is raising up like the hypocrisy of sort of this pure lineage, this, this sort of ideal idea that the Jewish lineage kind of had and what it, what it represented. And he's saying, here are these women who are central to our story, who were treated so unfairly and so horribly by the men in their lives, and yet they, that are this beautiful, quote unquote, genealogy of our king rests on these women. So David gets word that she is pregnant, but he's not thwarted, he's not like, oh my gosh, what am I gonna do? He just simply acts very quickly. He sends Joab a letter, send me Uriah the Hittite, and under the guise that, hey, Uriah is going to give me some information um, from the front lines, he says, go wash your feet. And wash your feet is a euphemism uh, in their culture that meant uh, sleep with your spouse. And so he sends him out to do that. In David's mind, this is like a no-brainer. But then David's intelligence agency that he has sent out to give him reports, spying on Uriah, come back and say uh, that he didn't go home. He didn't go home. And so all of a sudden, there's another thing this king can't control, and that is the character of a good man or a good woman. Uriah, in fact, indicts David with his speech. There's irony to it because he is not an Israelite. He is not a king. He is just this guy serving Israel. And in this little speech, the ark is in Israel and Judah. The men are staying in tents. My commander's in tents. In other words, we're... We're all out, everybody is at war. How in the world can I go home and do this? I'm not gonna do it, how could I? For David though, that's not an issue. David can do all of it, right? David can do all those things and more. And and despite being face to face with this man whose wife that he stole and who has become pregnant, who speaks basically like with conviction, mirrors, this is the heart you're supposed to have, David. It doesn't even humble David in the least. So he says, well, I'm gonna get him drunk. We're gonna have a party. If there's one thing that will soften good character, it's good wine. And so he gets him hammered, fakes friendship with him, and he still doesn't go down And so there are things David realizes he can't control, but instead of being thwarted, he just sends him his own death warrant, writes it in, seals the orders, betrays Uriah with a Judas kiss that he himself delivers his own death warrant. When the messenger brings back word to David, and David, the way that it's translated in the NIV is uh, don't let this upset you, like giving word back to Joab. Say to him, don't let this upset you. The, The literal rendering is don't let this be evil in your eyes. 
And the way that the verse ends after 27, it says, after the time of mourning, David brought Bathsheba in him and she became his wife. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. And what the writer is doing is he's playing on this fact that the king believes that he can do whatever he wants because he has all power and all authority, that he can determine what is good and what is evil, and that he can so much so that he can communicate to Joab that though we have just murdered a good man for actions that David himself did, don't let it be evil in your eyes. Don't let it be evil in your eyes. And then it turns in verse 27 and says, but there are other eyes that watch. There are other eyes that see. And the thing that David did was evil in the eyes of God. Was evil in the eyes of God. So Bathsheba mourns and David marries her and this baby is born. And, and David thinks he has gotten away with everything. That there is no issue, there is no problem. That I, by my own authority and my own power, have made it so. And because there are no consequences to the thing that I have done, he has the power to declare the thing that he has done is not evil. There's, it is, he's changing truth. He's changing morality. He's changing what righteousness is. And we live in a time where I feel like everybody is trying to do this. It's a time that we live where Christianity, there was a time where the question was, is Christianity true? Now the question is, is Christianity good? Because it is wrong to say that sin exists. It is wrong to say that there is such a thing as morality. And yet, there is this other side of the church that has condemned everyone but themselves. That we don't look at our own sin, we only condemn everybody else. And so that has gone on for so long that there's this reaction to it that just says that's bad. But, there, but both sides are sort of in this ridiculous critique and where, where we live in this space where everyone is condemning everybody else. The story, though, asks us to evaluate these two ways of seeing things. Through David's eyes, not evil in my eyes, or through Yahweh's eyes, that the thing David had done was evil in Yahweh's eyes. Control is always the nature of sin. When we are trying to control we are never feel more godlike when we are con when we are in control. There is a part of our wiring that we like being in control, whether we're gaining security or independence or self satisfaction. 
feeling powerful and capable, and some of those things aren't bad, but when they become ultimate, when they become the thing that we are in conquest for, when we get what we want at the other people's expense, that is a picture of control. Remember at the beginning of the pandemic when there was a rush on toilet paper, and it wasn't as if, like, they were saying, look, we, we're not out of toilet paper yet. We, there's plenty of toilet paper. But there was some, something about feeling, like, you saw these people with just massive carts of toilet paper. Of all the things, too, if you think about it, like, we're starving to death. Like, they're shriveled up. They haven't drank water for months. But, but they can, you know, they're, they're very... They, they're wiped uh, really well. Um, <laughs> but the sense that I have the thing, I have the thing of scarcity, we're going to be okay. But our control is always an illusion of what's actually going on, of what is truly real. God's controls reality, not us. And so there is this danger when we trust someone or something other than God to give us that sense of security or satisfaction or power or capability or righteousness to get what we want. It will almost always lead us to sin against God and someone else, to hurt God and someone else. And too many of us spend way too much time trying to hitch our wagons to those who claim to have power, to claim to have control, to claim to have authority and capability to get us what we want. Or we clamor to get that power ourselves and that too is a fallacy. The model for what we do with power, what we do with any control or influence that we have been given is Jesus. And in Philippians chapter two, what we see is Jesus used his power and humbled himself and took the form of a servant. He used his power to give, not take, to create life, to build up, to love his neighbor, not kill him and steal his wife, right? And you and I are following King Jesus, not this King David. And yet we have baptized people who are chasing after David power. It's interesting that the sin that David is always accused of is adultery, but adultery is just is one result of the much larger insidious sin, which you can add murder and lust for godlike power and control, and our craving to be God will probably, our craving to build God, will probably not reveal itself in such spectacular fashion. 
but it can have just as deadly consequences on our hearts and on other people, leaving us in this place of doing that thing that is evil in the eyes of God. Now, we can run to one side and say, look, there is no such thing as evil in the eyes of God. Or we can run to the other side and say the the only people doing evil in the eyes of God are those people and never look inward at ourselves. Or we can be humble before God and recognize all of my own propensity to want to be God, that I can hurt people and hurt God by my sin. The thing about sin, when we're talking about authentic spirituality, we have to talk about sin because we're human. And if you're human, you're gonna sin. And the thing about sin is that it's always the same, whether it's in the halls of power or in the homes that we all go to when we're done. There's nothing shocking about it. Even though we see it as sensational and scandalous and the media likes to hype it up, the truth is sin is pretty boring, actually. I mean, because it can always be marked by the same things, non-life, non-freedom, non-love. The fruit is always the same. And so sin is the undoing of something good in order to get what I want to fulfill my own desire or the ignoring of a, a thing that God has commanded me to do so I can protect myself. Like, I don't want to love my neighbor. I'll ignore them so I can kind of keep myself safe. I'm undoing a good in order to get what I want to fulfill my own desires. And because it plays out on global scales and political offices and boardrooms as well as bedrooms, It feels as if this all-consuming effect, but underneath all the carnage, it's this simple, godless reality. I'm undoing something good in order to play God and get what I want. And so picture it like taking, someone goes to Portland Art Museum and let's say Rembrandt's in town, and so there's all these you know, amazing paintings, and somebody takes a black Sharpie, and they just like mark it up, and they're like, ha, look at that, right? And you see it, and you're like, yeah, that, that sucks. And, and there's like media about it. Somebody took Rembrandt, and they put a Sharpie, and then they go do another one, you're like, ta-da! And you're like, after a while, you're like, yeah, I get it. It's just undoing something beautiful, that's, that's what sin is after a while. We just got a lot of different types of ways to look at it. And so TMZ can keep us reading, and the news can keep us reading, and everything can keep us reading, because we're like, oh my gosh, did you see what's up? But at the end of the day, we're just fascinated by the same unlife and unbeauty and unfreedom. Whereas love 
especially the redemptive, sacrificial love of Jesus. That is new creation. That brings this beauty out of the ashes. It places this creative uh, imagination that can dream God's world into beginning. It is filled with so much life, and we get invited into that way, which is a selfless way that can bear the fruit of love. But that requires seeing the world through a different set of eyes, a different perspective, that that world is the world God sees. And letting my vision be surrendered to and shaped by his vision. And so the question becomes, which world am I going to live through? Which way am I going to see the world? How am I going to live into the world with my own God-like way of being? Or am I going to humble myself before God and recognize my propensity to try to be God? Well, Nathan is a prophet, but also kind of a pastor to David. And He gets word, and the Lord sends Nathan to David in chapter 12. And it says, the Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he came to him, he said there were, he tells him a little story, and he said there were two men in a certain town. One was rich, and the other was poor. And the rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, that he had bought and he had raised it and it grew up with him and his children and it shared his food and drank from his cup and even slept in his arms like a daughter to him. And the traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. And instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and he prepared it for the one who had come. And David burned with anger against the man. He said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times because he did such a thing and had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. It is this classic story to somehow subvert David's arrogance, to subvert David's self, uh, self-worship, really, that can kind of crack the door somehow. We all need a good friend, a good spiritual friend, a good pastoral-type friend, and Nathan is a good friend to David here. He's masterful. And he uses this story to help get through to David's self-deception. I don't know if you've noticed, but it's easier to sin, see sin in other people than it is in us. Like you hear that story and you're like, yeah, I'm gonna, that guy needs to die. And then you realize he's hitting a bullseye. You are the man. He says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said. I anointed you king of Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul, and I gave your your master's house and your master's wives into your arm. I gave you all Israel and Judah, and if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. 
Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now for the sword will never depart from your own house. You are the man. We have to get ourselves into the story. It's not a matter if we will sin. It's a matter of what will you do when you do sin? What will you do when you are called out or found out? You were the man. You were the woman. You did it. And we all have been the man or the woman. What will we do? How will we respond in that moment? And sin has consequences. Galatians, I love the way that Paul puts it. He says, don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A person reaps what they sow. Whoever sows to please their flesh from their flesh will reap destruction. But whoever sows to please the spirit, the spirit will reap eternal life. David is going to pay for his sins. He's going to pay the consequences for these sins. And despite everything that David does, he gets one thing right in verse 13. After everything that he is accused of and everything that he's confronted with, he simply says, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. Despite everything that he does, that's the one thing he gets right. And it's one sentence. He doesn't explain. He doesn't excuse. He doesn't, you know, if I put myself in the story and I think about the times that I have been the man, and yeah, I didn't kill Uriah the Hittite, but with my sin, I did kill the Son of God. While we were sinners, Christ died for us, that, that there is a reason he died, and it was because of my sin. I am the man when it comes to Jesus on the cross. And that God in his kindness would notice my sin and send me a Nathan, a friend, a spiritual partner to call me back to my sense of God and truth and righteousness and evil and all that God asked of me that I would come clean that I have sinned against the Lord that is the thing right it's not an excuse it's not to explain but confession and repentance is simply that That when we are confronted with the sin that we have done, that we simply can say, yes, I have sinned against the Lord. And God in his kindness, what we think we're going to get is a wrathful God who comes down to smite us. But because of the mercy of God, instead, we get what the prodigal gets when he comes home. He gets a father who greets us with a ring and a robe and a kiss. Why? 
because God desires that we would know his love. And sin being that one thing that separated us from that love. So Jesus on the cross and through the resurrection makes sure that sin would never be able to separate us from that love again. It's humbling to be the man or to be the woman. But this is part of the authentic Christian life. It is coming to the place of humility and honesty when we lose our way. And to be able to receive correction from another, rebuke even from another, and to actually repent and confess to God. I did it. I did it. It sounds so simple, but it is no small thing. And in a moment like we live in, it is the thing that no one is willing to do, to own our own sin and to humbly repent before God. To, to, to not wipe away evil and say nothing is evil in our eyes anymore and to pull the plank out of our eyes and quit condemning everybody else. But to actually be honest before God and allow the Spirit to look at our life as God sees our life and to humble ourselves before his eyes when he looks at our life. And the beautiful thing that he offers us is forgiveness, to take all of that unfreedom and unlife and, and destruction and replace it with true life and new creation and love, right, and love. 